This is part three in a ten-part series about the ten makos in Mitzrayim. The third makah, the makah of kinim, uh, kinim in modern Hebrew means lice, but it could refer to any type of insect, um, perhaps according to some versions, not just insects, but other types of worms and and um, bugs that afflicted Mitzrayim. There's a very interesting shift in the way that the Makkah of Kinim is described. There are very few Psokim in Parshas Vaira which describe the Makkah of Kinim. Interestingly enough, of note, there is no warning to Paro, unlike both Dam and Svardas. So this is the first Makkah which is delivered without warning. Um, and also at the end of the Makkah, the Khartoumim, the magicians, start to fail to reproduce the miracles. They had reproduced the sign of the staff of the Mata turning into a snake. They had reproduced the blood. At this point, they had reproduced the Tzvardim. At this point, they can no longer reproduce the miracle and the plague, the Maka. And that's why they're no longer referred to as Khartoumim Mitzrayim. They didn't have the same allure and prestige. They're now just Khartoumim. If you look carefully at the Pasuk in which the Khartoumim were mentioned and in their failure, it's Pasuk Tezvav, Parachas, Vayamu HaChartumim. In this case, the word Chartumim is missing the Yud. Typically, Chartumim is spelt with the Yud at the end. Ches, Reish, Tes, Mem, Yud, Mem. In this case, the Yud is, is dropped, and you can see them almost fading from view. And there are many reasons they couldn't, but probably the most telling reason, and the reason that they acknowledge that this is Etzba Eloki, and they're starting to realize HaKadosh Baruch Hu, a monotheistic God. And this is the finger of the Rabboni Shalom, something they can't reproduce. This is more or less based on the Ramban. is because unlike Dam and Svardea, Kinim was spontaneous generation. Dam took water and converted it into blood. And material can be converted into another material, whether through sleight of hand, whether through chemical recombination. But the notion of taking one material and converting it into another material is something which at least the world of black magic had access to. In the case of the Tzvardim, either the frogs or the crocodiles, there was very little um, creation taking place. They simply arose, and the Torah is very clear that they arose from the Nile. So these amphibians, reptiles, which typically, naturally lived in the Nile, at once arose methodically from the Nile and attacked the Egyptians. So clearly it was an intervention, it was a supernatural event, but it wasn't spontaneous generation. In this instance, it's clear that there is spontaneous generation, that these bugs, beetles, lice, vermin, they're coming from ground, and interestingly enough, they're not coming from the Nile. And it's, it's important for the Torah to emphasize that unlike... The previous two bakos, Dam and Svardea, the scene of the crime, so to speak, the scene of the origin of this maka is not the Nile. Moshe does not approach Pyro at the Nile because to a degree, had the Nile brought forth the kingdom as it turned into blood and brought forth frogs, it would not have been seen as spontaneous because basically it would have been a natural process. When the Nile turns to blood, the fish die, the fish uh, decompose, turning the Nile into a pond. The pond then attracts frogs because it's no longer fresh water, and there are predators to eliminate the frogs. And then once the frogs die, and they die on the banks of the river, and their bodies start to decompose, it's only natural for scavengers and mice and 
other types of rodents and, and fleas, and maggots, to congregate and then afflict all of Egypt and all of Mitzrayim. So it's very important that this not take place primarily at the Nile, the Or. That's why it's Vayachas Afar Haaretz, it's the dry earth which serves as the springboard for the Kinim. And the Torah emphasizes, Kol Afar Haaretz, the entire earth of Egypt, Hayakinim, Bechol Eretz Mitzrayim, the entire land of Egypt. In fact, there are some who actually claim that the kingdom started on the on the people, on the animals, not from the ground, even though it doesn't really seem that way from the Pesukim, but just to uh, re- uh, just to reject any notion that these kingdom are part of this natural progression once the frogs' bodies were decomposing and decaying, it attracted flies and maggots. This was something new. This was spontaneous generation. This was a, a maka, a phenomena, which the Khartoum had absolutely no ability uh, no way of, of recreating or duplicating. They started to acknowledge, this is really a, a God that we have no ability to duplicate, to imagine, something beyond. So there's definitely a shift um, in, the, in the mechanics of the miracle, from converting water to blood, or, from, or rising or arousing the uh, reptiles and amphibians from the Nile River, this is creating something. This is HaKadosh Baruch Hu introducing himself, not just as a god of science, but as a creator of the world, capable of spontaneous generation. Something from nothing. Kingdom from ground. Live matter from inanimate or, or non-living matter. So that's part of the demonstration. But what about the, the, the plague itself, the mock itself? HaKadosh Baruch Hu could have spontaneously generated many different things to demonstrate his etzbelkin, so the other layers why was it so um, uh, punishing? Why was it so so much of a persecution to the Egyptians? So part of it is this theme that's unfolding very, very slowly, and I've tried to draw attention to this, is the breadbasket of Egypt is being slowly, slowly handicapped. The fish die in the plague of Dam, and the frogs invade the kitchens and invade the, the ovens. And here as well, if the afar turned into kinim and, and Chazal are very, very descriptive. These aren't just a few bugs covering. Every patch of land was covered with kinim. Anytime you dug out the land, the kinim would uh, just fill that hole. That's how many, that's how many millions and the swarm of kinim. So it'd be harder to conduct typical, regular agriculture to plant, to grow the kinim. Perhaps it's not really the arbe. It doesn't sound like that they would eat the vegetation and eat the produce. It's certainly difficult, and keep in mind that kinim, that these bugs and rodents, and they really unsettle the ground. Think of an ant colony. An ant colony dislodges the ground, and it's very hard for the seeds to settle in, whatever you're trying to plant. And keep in mind that Mitzrayim was still seen as the breadbasket of the Mediterranean that fed the entire planet. In the end of Sefer Bereshus, Yosef had succeeded in turning Egypt into a superpower, in part because of their ability to irrigate their lands and grow produce, feed themselves, and feed others. So this cultural confidence, this national confidence was being dismantled. But more than just the agricultural sector, which was hampered by the kingdom, something else, it was a different industry, a different sector, which is even more handicapped. And that's part of the lesson here, and not just the lesson, but a, a very new phenomenon. If the entire land is filled with afar, is filled with, uh, is filled with kingdom, so there's one industry that really grinds to a halt, and that's 
the construction industry for two reasons. Because number one, the the ground, the afar, the the dirt, the straw, that was the source of bricks. These were the source of mortar, of of cement to patch together these heavy stones used in pyramids. And if the the ground was full of kinyam, and anywhere you dug out ground and dirt and mud, immediately became filled and infested with teams and scores of teeming kinyam. Essentially, you no longer have raw material to build with. There's a shortage of cement. You can't construct anything. Construction has to grind to a halt. But it's not just that the raw material for construction is no longer plentiful or available, but you have nothing to build on. Building these large structures requires solid land. You can't build a pyramid in the marshlands of Florida. You need solid land to hold the weight, to bear the mass of these large buildings, of these Ari Miskino Slaparo. And if the dirt and land becomes unsettled and, and um, disturbed, as it were, not disturbed psychologically, but the, the land has been disturbed because there are beetles and vermin and, and worms and uncontrollable numbers of ants and kingdom crawling through and unsettling the land, the land becomes too brittle, too frail to bear the weight of these buildings. So all of a sudden, the entire construction industry grinds to a halt. And two things happen. First of all, there's a punishment for the Egyptians. There's Mita Keneged Mita, because the primary subjugation of the Jewish people was forcing them into labor to build. Pisom and Ramses, Are Miskinos Leparo. That was the primary torture. There's so many levels of torture, so many levels of dehumanization. But it all started, and it all was centered around forcing the Jews to be involved in construction. So they're being punished in an area that hits home that starts to remind them these are punishments, not just to break the Egyptian paganistic view as the Nile. Again, the Nile was associated with killing the Jews, but the Nile had a larger larger role in Egyptian culture. And Dam was primarily a theological attack, not just retribution for throwing Jewish babies into the Nile. But here... The Afar wasn't really worshipped. We don't have any record of the ground and the dirt being worshipped, but we do have record, and Chazal was sensitive to this, of the Afar being the source of construction in the entire land of Egypt. Remember that Pasuk that I cited earlier is filled with Kenan. The entire Afar is filled with Kenan. And in this case, the Afar becomes not just the launching pad from which the Kenan are, are spontaneously generated, but the Afar becomes really the target of the Makkah, the target of the Makkah is to convert earth and, and dirt, the raw materials of construction, into kingdom. And wherever they dug, and there are different opinions in Chazal, was it a depth of two almas or five almas? But just imagine taking your shovel, pitching it into the ground, trying to lift up some dirt, and that hole that's created immediately becomes filled with beetles and, and vermin, and just simply can't, you can't draw any raw material for construction. And it's not just a punishment for the Egyptians that since you forced the Jews into backbreaking labor of parach in trying to construct these towers, so your afar will be taken, you'll be deprived of the raw materials. But what ultimately happens, and this is really the first moment, this is turning point in the Makos, believe it or not, it's Kenim. It doesn't seem so dramatic. We'll see this a bit later. The bondage of the Jewish people starts to be released. If the construction industry grinds to a halt, then the Jews are no longer working as hard as they used to. There are no buildings to 
to construct. There's no raw material, there's no cement in our jargon, in our vernacular. And slowly the Jews are being released from their labor. The first two makos, as it were, entailed more or less a dialogue between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the Egyptians. A dialogue about theology, about paganism, about moral crime, about retribution. And it may not have been evident to the Jewish people that this was a redemption. Remember, Moshe and Aaron tried to pitch and sell the redemption, but they didn't listen, they didn't understand, they couldn't imagine it. Lo Shamuel Moshe, Mikotzer Ruach, in the beginning of Vayera. And slowly the Makos are informing, and we'll see this in Arov far more dramatically, they're slowly convincing the Jewish people that HaKadosh Baruch was not here solely to showcase monotheism, to denounce paganism, to avenge moral crimes, but to release the Jewish people. And this is the first moment that they aren't working as hard. We don't see it in the actual Pesukim, but we feel it now that the construction industry could no longer proceed. And that's really one of the thrusts of Kenan. The, the, the grounds and the construction primarily became much more difficult. But there is a different drama playing out. And this is not an attack on the construction industry of Egypt and the forced labor of the Jewish people, but on the Egyptians themselves. The Torah makes it clear that it wasn't just the ground which was affected, Twice, the Torah writes, that Vatihi hakinam ba'adam uva The kinim, in this case lice or maggots or other fleas and ticks, they afflicted man and animal as well as the dirt. And a little bit later again, it says it twice. Remember, these are very few psukim. There are four psukim in total describing kinim. And twice within these four psukim, the Torah stresses vatihi both man and animal were afflicted. Now, animals normally, typically, are sweaty. Animals normally, typically, are full of maggots and lice, and they have to swing their tails or rub themselves with their paws or go into water or take all sorts of uh, tactics to remove the fleas and lice, which latch onto their bodies, to their hair, to their fur. But humans are much more hygienic. The only human beings that are sweaty, full of lice and maggots and, and growths, are slaves. So, by converting the Jewish people into slaves, essentially the Egyptians were converting them into lice-ridden, flea-infested, subhuman, animal-like individuals. While they luxuriated in their palaces, while they indulged in their luxuries... And there's a racial process taking place. Something I'll talk about a little bit more in Arov, where there's a superior race that gets to enjoy the luxuries, and there's a slave trade, and they lead subhuman lives. And the kingdom always is a, is a reflection of a subhuman, bare-bones, non-hygienic, unhealthy regimen. It's natural to animals. It's not natural to human beings, unless that human being is a slave. And by afflicting the Egyptians with kingdom, essentially HaKadosh Baruch Hu was knocking them down a peg, converting them into sweaty, smelly animals infested with kingdom. So this phrase, Vatiya kinam ba'adam uva behema, essentially demotes the Egyptians to the level, to the status of a behema. And Chazal say, interestingly enough, that the phrase Vatiya kinam Ba'adam uva 
that not only did the Egyptians have lice or kenim, but the Jews also, the difference was, the Egyptian lice was aggressive, it bit them, it, it inconvenienced them, they felt pain, whereas the Jewish lice uh, wasn't as aggressive or violent. But the real difference is the Jews had lice probably before this all began, because they were slaves, they could never shower, they couldn't attend to their hygiene. So essentially, it wasn't just demoting the Egyptians to the level of an animal, it was demoting the Egyptians to the level of their slaves and obliterating the hygienic boundaries they sought to establish, they assumed they could maintain between master and slave, with an edge, with a sting. So now they had lice, and it was a lice that drove them crazy, and afflicted their land, and covered their bodies, and the Jews just suffered until, you know, they could attend to themselves hygienically. I don't, the, the, the Maka didn't affect the Jews, the Maka essentially created equilibrium parallel between Egyptian and Jew. And it was a debasement and a demotion and it was an attempt to embarrass it and bring the Egyptians down from their pedestal. And that's part of the reason why there's no hasra, there's no warning. Whenever a Kurdish Baruch wants to demonstrate a religious or theological point, there needs to be a warning or else they won't connect the two. They won't translate it into a religious message. So there's got to be a warning. This is what you'll see and this is what you'll be asked to identify, to translate. Or when HaKadosh Baruch Hu is punishing the Egyptians, there needs to be a warning, because man isn't punished unless he's forewarned. But the primary thrust of Kenan may have just been to uh, psychologically embarrass the Egyptians. And you don't want to telecast an event that will embarrass someone, because they really won't be embarrassed. Someone's only embarrassed when it's unexpected, when your previous con- conventions and previous associations and assumptions are all debunked, and you realize you're not everything you thought you were. If HaKadosh Baruch tells the Egyptians, tomorrow you'll have lice, and I'll show you that you're really a slave, well, then they're prepared for it, and, and they won't feel the same psychological sting. So it has to be a bit of a surprise. It has to be something which is unexpected. So these are really the two thrusts of Kenan. Again, I think every maka is affecting the breadbasket, and we'll see this in most of the Makos. It is a gradual, gradual elimination of the Egyptian ability to feed themselves. But there are two unique aspects. Beyond just the fact that this was the first spontaneous generation, the first time a Kurdish Baruch Hu in Mitzrayim amongst the Makos created something from nothing, ex nihilo, the Kenan per se, filling the entire land, one was to eliminate earth, dirt, soil, as both a source of construction as well as a site of construction, Basically, no more buildings were put up during the plague of Kenan and probably beyond. Halted the entire process of enslaving Jewish people for construction. Second of all, it really does dehumanize and debase the Egyptians as they did to the Jewish people by turning them into smelly, animal-like, slave-like, Adam